this episode of What's the Story, Old Glory, we're focusing on US foreign policy and the role of the president. We interview Professor of International Relations at the University of Otago, Robert Patman. We recorded this on the day that former US Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, passed away at the age of 100. So we're dedicating this episode to him. Henry Kissinger, how we're missing you. And in past glory, we look at the second US president, founding father, John Adams. Kia ora koutou. Welcome everyone to this episode of What's the Story, Old Glory. Um, the first of perhaps our internationally recording sessions. I'm coming to you this morning from Adelaide in South Australia. Where are you today, oh, that's, Todd? That's, that's great. Yes, this is the big sojourn to America via Adelaide. Uh, uh, is it uh, Elizabeth? That's that sounds great. I'm in I'm in sunny Tauranga, uh, so that's a, a, a bit of a theme. Um, lovely, but uh, gosh, I wish I was over there with you. And obviously, when we get to America, that'll be even more uh, fun. Uh, so, what takes you to Adelaide? Um, attending a, a, a workshop and and formal uh, annual general meeting for Water Stewardship Asia Pacific, which is a, um, an organisation that I do work for, which is doing very important work around the region, supporting water users to become good stewards of our precious water resources. Yeah, and I guess in Australia, it's a it's far more front of mind um, uh, in terms of scarcity, I would think. But uh, we're not important. A, we're not a water podcast. Uh, we're a political podcast. Uh, and you have managed brilliantly, Elizabeth, to get uh, uh, Professor Robert Patman from your university uh, that you went to to spend a bit of time. How did you manage to get him? So um, Professor Patman was one of my teachers first time around when I went to university and I studied um, politics. He taught me international relations. He was a fantastic lecturer. So, um, um, and he's he's well known in New Zealand for appearing on um, um, television, radio and things as as being the foremost expert in New Zealand on, on international relations and particularly UN, US foreign policy. So I reached out to him, played my, I'm a former student card and um, we managed to secure him uh, to be interviewed by us. Very fortunate. Well, you you must have been a uh, a very good student, as if he remembers you, and so without any. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if he did. There it is. Um, let's listen to our chat. A really interesting chat with Professor Robert Patman. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Um, we're very lucky today to have with us um, Professor Robert Patman. Um, from my alma mater, the University of Otago and the Department of Politics. Um, so, Professor, thank you very much for joining us. If you could please just um, give us a bit of background, your expertise to our listeners, that would be great. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you and Todd uh, this morning. Uh, my background, I'm a what's called a sesquicentennial um, distinguished chair. Um, that was a chair that was invented to mark 150th anniversary of our university, the University of Otago, which is the oldest in New Zealand. Um, and I, more generally, I'm a professor of international relations. So that's my area of expertise or knowledge. And uh, I teach in the area of US foreign policy and have written published in this area. And um, um, I think that's probably all I need to say, really. It's quite an introduction and delighted to have you, uh, Professor. 
Thank you. you know, the purpose of our uh, podcast is to um, uh, Kiwis who just love American politics, but trying to make sense of it ourselves as much as uh, uh, for our listeners and I'm delighted to have you on. So why don't we just kick off um, US foreign policy? Why on earth should we worry about it? Well, how does it impact us? Uh, why should it be front of mind as we watch events unfold over the next uh, 12 months? I think there's historical, economic, security and political reasons why the US, the United States is very important to New Zealand. Uh, the two countries began quite a close association during the Second World War when New Zealand, when the US troops were stationed in New Zealand as part of the bid of America's Pacific War. And uh, the association deepened during the Cold War. Uh, we became a member of ANZUS in 1951, which was a partnership, security partnership between Australia, the United States and New Zealand. And for about 30 years, uh, New Zealand was a very close security partner of the United States. The US displaced Britain as being the provider of security for New Zealand in a, a world that was, of course, then divided by the Cold War. Um, and uh, there were differences in the mid 80s over nuclear, uh, New Zealand's non-nuclear stance, but that relationship has recovered substantially in the 21st century. It is now very close. Uh, there were agreements, so so-called Wellington and Washington declarations of 2012 and 2014, respectively. Uh, so there's, yeah, I mean, there's been uh, uh, there's been a security relationship. Economically, the United States also is very important to New Zealand. I'm not sure that the reverse is true, but um, New uh, the United States is the third largest uh, export market for New Zealand's goods and services. Um, and so for those reasons, and another factor we shouldn't forget, which interestingly has just featured in, is, you know, I understand will be featuring in Mr. Peter's first address as foreign minister, um, is that the United States and New Zealand share fundamental political values, a commitment to liberal democracy, a commitment to the rule of law. So I think when you put it all together, there's lots of reasons, uh, political, um, economic, security reasons why, and historic reasons why these countries have a close relationship. On top of that, I think there's also a cultural pull or mode of attraction between the two countries. Both citizens feel very comfortable in each other's country. And uh, New Zealand is, of course, a, a new world country in, in a sense. And, and I think uh, it's much more informal than some of the more hierarchical societies of Europe. And I think Americans feel comfortable in New Zealand. I cer certainly Kiwis feel quite comfortable in the United States. So I think for all these reasons, the two, you know, from a New Zealand perspective, the US is important. So in terms of um, US foreign policy, how, how important is the role of president in setting the UN, US foreign policy agenda? And, and what does that mean for the rest of the world? Yeah, it, it's enormously important. Um, the, United, the US president is, if you like, the face of the United States in the world. It, and also the US president, as the paramount decision maker, is the chief diplomat. And um, the president has both impressive formal and informal powers 
to make decisions in the foreign policy arena. Formally, the president, whoever it is, he or she, uh, is the um, uh, chief commander in chief, civil control over the military establishment, has the ability um, to make treaties with other countries, providing two thirds of the Senate support the president of the in question, uh, has the ability to make executive agreements with foreign heads of state without the consent of the uh, uh, Senate, and also has the very important power to appoint most of the senior officials that will be advising um, the president, whoever that is, when they're in office. And then, of course, there is informal powers. Um, what, uh, an important formal power that the, the president has is the ability to draw on a, a range of information, which is almost unparalleled, uh, both from formal sources, but also because of access that the president has. Uh, another informal power, which is very important, is the ability to direct, uh, communicate directly with the American people. Many presidents, particularly when confronted with a crisis, whether it be in domestic politics or in foreign policy, may organize a, a prime time uh, communication with the American people on live TV. Uh, presidents always can command prime time spots on US TV, which means even if they're getting quite a lot of criticism from the US printed media, they do have a way of cutting through directly with people. And uh, many presidents have used that to powerful effect. Um, I was just reflecting the other day, um, President Kennedy made an address uh, a long time ago now, 22nd of October, um, 1962, um, when the Cuban crisis, missile crisis was unfolding. It was a relatively brief address, but it was very powerful. And certainly, I think, uh, went a long way to reassure, but also alert Americans to the gravity of the situation facing them and also consolidated public support for the administration. Mm. So when we look at um, what we assume will be um, uh, Trump versus Biden, um, but you know, there's still a lot of water to go under that bridge and we'll get a sense of that when, uh, when we're alive in America in a couple of weeks time. But it, what's the difference between perhaps the Republican uh, traditional view of f foreign policy and the Democrats? Is there a real difference uh, from a New Zealand perspective looking out over there? Um, and perhaps as a, as a corollary to that, um, has it changed? You know, is, has America's mm. approach to foreign policy, uh, how's that changed over the last, um, you know, after the last decades? Yeah, they're big questions. I would say, Todd, um, that during the Cold War, that period between 1947 and 1989, there was a fair amount of bipartisanship uh, between the Republicans and the Democrats when it came to foreign policy. They were both very clear who America's chief adversary was. It was the rival superpower, the Soviet Union. Um, and of course, there was a big ideological gulf between the United States and the Soviet Union. So uh, there were periods when there were disagreements over foreign policy. Vietnam was one. Um, and there were, you know, so I'm not saying it was without dissent or disagreement. Uh, but for much of the time, the key 
if you like, the fr key frame of reference was the Cold War. And essentially, Republicans and Democrats, although they may have disagreed in terms of emphasis, they agreed on the fundamentals about the need for the United States to, if you like, defend the free world and also um, for the United States to sustain the struggle against Soviet communism globally. It all changed with the end of the Cold War. What we began to see early in the 1990s was a fraying of that bipartisan consensus, which is not surprising because, if you like, the glue that held American domestic politics together with respect to foreign policy was the, the Soviet adversary, the, the perception that the United States was confronted with a credible global adversary, that that global adversary disappeared with the end of the Cold War. Indeed, the prospects of a full-blown nuclear war receded dramatically with the end of the Cold War. So America was in an interesting situation, almost historically unprecedented, where it had few credible rivals that could seriously threaten the United States. At least that's how it looked in the early 90s. And what we began to see was quite serious differences emerging uh, between Republicans and Democrats on a range of issues. For example, when President Clinton, um, he, by what, it was actually a Republican president, President Bush Sr. sent troops to Somalia to help in a humanitarian intervention to try to get the distribution of food to people who needed it. It resulted in an armed confrontation between American troops in Mogadishu and, and one of the factions present in Somalia. And that led to demands by Republicans, such as John McCain, to pull the troops home. So you, you began to get differences. Uh, Mr. Clinton largely agreed with that and brought the troops home within six months. But we, you began to see uh, differences, not only over troop deployments. Uh, for example, the Republicans made it quite a, a key slogan in the 1990s that America mustn't get into nation building. And um, I think the Democrats took that lesson to heart to some degree, uh, but were less strict in the way they applied it. Um, from their point of view, America couldn't stand aloof from the rest of the world because America was the world's only superpower at that stage and people expected it to be involved. And Mr. Clinton argued, and that's why he got involved, for example, in the Bosnian crisis in the mid-90s and later in Kosovo at the end of the 90s, that America was the only country that could effectively had, had the ability to bring uh, really deadly conflicts to a halt where you had, particularly where you had ethnic blending or genocide. So uh, there was a bit of a tussle there between the Republicans and the Democrats, and it, it continued. Uh, there was, uh, I think, some consensus over 9-11, but there was some fraying even then. For example, a future contender for the presidency, uh, Barack Obama, made it quite clear he didn't support the invasion uh, of Iraq in 2003. Um, and we saw, I think, a continuation of a pattern whereby Republicans and Democrats tended to disagree. Um, it, it, they both agreed that, you know, it was necessary to confront terrorism, but they often disagreed how it should be done. And um, I think a key point of difference that's emerged is that the Republicans have been much more detached in terms of commitment to international institutions than 
the Democrats. And it's been quite noticeable when the Obama administration took power after the George W. Bush administration, and also when Joe Biden replaced Donald Trump as president, you saw America once again um, become much more committed to international institutions than it had been under Republican presidents. So I would say that, you know, there's been differences have emerged on basically America's role in the world. How committed should it be to institutions? The Republicans tend to see such institutions as a constraint on American power, whereas Democrats, and I'm simplifying enormously, tend to see institutions as being consistent with American power and a source of legitimacy for America's role in the world. Um, how, do you have a sense of how important um, the differences in, in foreign policy between the parties and also foreign US foreign policy in general is to voters in America? Do they care about what happens outside America? I, I think the picture's changing. I think Americans do care. Uh, but I think in most elections, foreign policy does not figure prominently in the elections. That's not just confined to the United States. I think that's that's probably the case in many liberal democracies. There have been exceptions. Uh, the 1968 presidential election, the 1980 election, and the 2004 election, they were all elections where foreign policy did actually figure quite prominently and where the, the presidential contenders had slightly different positions. Um, but mostly it doesn't. And I think um, it's not that Americans don't care, but they are in a rather dif distinctive situation in relation to many other countries. Um, for example, America has been for a long time the most powerful country in the world. And I think in a sense, it's a large society with a population of more than 330 million people. It's got a vibrant economy. It's got huge international connections. Because it is the most powerful country, I think there is an assumption, which is perfectly understandable in many respects, that America will set the foreign policy agenda. Therefore, when an election comes along, foreign policy is not seen as necessarily something that would by itself um, become a major discussion amongst people around the kitchen table in their respective homes. However, I think something is really changing. Um, and uh, it was very interesting to me, what is this thing that's changing? I think it's globalization, this process of interconnectedness, which means that we're seeing the breakdown, the erosion of boundaries between domestic, what might be called domestic politics and, and foreign policy. This is affecting all countries, uh, but it's particularly affecting great powers because they are used to having much more autonomy than middle powers and small powers. Um, what was really striking to me, give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, Joe Biden, when confronted with this horrendous Hamas terrorist attack um, on uh, Israel on the 7th of October, did what he probably and his advisors probably thought was the safe, politically safe thing to do, which was to pledge very strong support almost unconditional support for Israel as it dealt with the aftermath of this situation. Um, the Israeli response, which was very rigorous and um, uh, intensive, has resulted in a large number of people not connected to the terrorist ep uh, episode 
uh, a number of Palestinian civilians dying, large numbers actually. And that has caused a tremendous reaction and backlash in the United States. Uh, it, because the world is so interconnected now and because images can be transmitted instantly at any point in the world, um, it's more difficult for a president, for any president, to keep control of the narrative in the way they could in the past. And in a sense, we live in a world where many of the issues transcend borders. What do I mean by that? For example, it doesn't matter if you're a superpower, you can't unilaterally fix climate change. And that applies to the United States and China, any other player. You can't fix COVID-19 if you're a superpower. Um, you can't fix transnational terrorism, although Mr. Bush, George W. Bush for a while assumed he could unilaterally. So I think this is a big issue and I think it will affect American elections increasingly going forward because I think because we are confronted with problems which are big for any too big for any country to solve, it means that countries are increasingly turning their attention to problems that need to be fixed, but they can't do on their own, which means that foreign policy begins to loom much more prominently than in the past. And um, it'll be very interesting to see in a tussle between Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump. Already, you've seen with the uh, contest for the nomination for the Republican Party, quite big foreign policy, difference emer policy differences emerging. And foreign policy is taking a much more prominent role already with uh, Nikki Haley, for example, distancing herself from those candidates who want to stop aid for Ukraine. She takes the view that supporting Ukraine is in the national interest of the United States. Uh, and that's just one example. So what I would say to you is I don't think it's America's don't care. Historically, foreign policy has not figured largely in American elections. But I think in the 21st century, the picture is beginning to change. And uh, I would not be surprised if going forward, and particularly in the 24 election, but beyond that, we see foreign policy issues loom much more largely because they're no longer purely foreign policy issues. They're, they're, they straddle the domestic and the foreign policy sphere. One commentator came up with a very good term for this. He said that America and the rest of the world are now confronted with intermestic issues, which is a, you know, a, a convergence between domestic and international issues. So, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, I think that's true. So when you have globalization uh, increasing the interconnectability, interconnectability of economies and uh, societies and communities, how does that um, reality buttress up against this tension that we've seen in America over decades between either being fully present in international environments and driving it as the superpower versus mm. almost a sense of at times saying, well, we'll leave the world to the world and we will be the island, the large island of America and the rest of you can get stuff. Or to put simply, isolationism versus, you know, being part of um, and a leading part of the global community. Why has that tension always been there? Is that a fair assessment? And why has that tension um, been always in American uh, politics? And 
how do you think that gets resolved when you see sort of Biden's view of the world versus Trump's view of the world? Right. Uh, I think you know, you've certainly touched on something that many ob outside observers notice about American politics and, and America's view of the world, that there seems to be a bit of a polarization between Americans who take a really deep interest in the outside world politically and those who seem to be more concerned of what's going on at home. I, I think the answer to your question is, is basically historical. We often forget, I think, um, that America only became fully engaged in foreign policy terms in after the Second World War. And that was a huge period of change for the United States. So for about the first 150 years, maybe more, of America's existence as a republic, it was semi-detached about foreign policy. It did sometimes get involved, but normally the occasional foray into foreign policy was to defend American interests. And then once those interests were defended, an American um, uh, an outcome which was suitable for the United States was achieved, America tended to focus on matters closer to home. America is a vast country, of course, a big economy. It's always been deeply involved commercially, but it, it was striking um, that, you know, before the Second World War, I can find no parallel to this. Objectively, America was the most powerful country in the world by 1910. And yet it wouldn't join the League of Nations, although it was responsible for its architecture under Woodrow Wilson. And so America, the Senate said no to joining the League of Nations. And so America played little part in international affairs in that crucial period, 1920s and 30s. I think one of the lessons that the Truman administration, in fact, Franklin Roosevelt before Harry Truman took, is that henceforth, in the post-45 period, America's engagement or its interest was best protected by sustained involvement. And so that was a huge change historically. But of course, I still think um, when people talk about America focusing more on things at home, there's a bit of a historical echo there. Um, and, and so America as an active foreign engaged foreign policy player is in historical terms quite recent since 1945. Um, I'm not sure at the moment in the 21st century, I was struck by the fact, although Mr. Trump and some of his supporters have an America first approach is what they call it. Um, I don't think it's isolationist. I think it's the view that the world politics should be shaped by the sovereign interests of nation states. That I mean, Mr. Trump set out his vision in the UN General Assembly several times. Um, and for Mr. Trump, um, multilateralism was not really um, his thing. He didn't particularly warm to it. He believed as the most powerful country, America could best safeguard its interests uh, through traditional bilateral diplomacy, largely, and also America using a combination of engagement and competition with others. It was a quite, a, if, if you like, it was an approach which basically was in denial about globalization. For you know, for Mr. Trump and his supporters, and for many populist leaders around the world, they argue 
that globalization is not an objective change. It's been a project uh, foisted by a number of internationally minded global elites. Whereas many of us would argue that actually globalization is not a project. It's a structural change in the world, which has been powered by digital and communications technology. And you can no more reverse globalization than you can deindustrialize or reverse industrialization. So there is a split there, Todd. I, I, I think, uh, you know, if you like, the, the, the more isolationist, more nationalist perspective hinges on uh, a much more uh, critical approach to globalization, saying that it, it's not uh, as far sweeping as many people claim. So how did Trump's position in, um, as, as you say, in relation to um, America first and, uh, and unilateralism, how did that affect America's standing in the world in terms of global politics? I think it was a mixed picture. Uh, I think many liberal democracies um, were very concerned. I think in the eyes of other liberal democracies, America's international standing diminished. In other words, under Mr. Trump, they did not see America as a model, an exempt, a political exemplar, a shining city on a hill, to use the American term. Uh, they were, I think, quite taken back by Mr. Trump's approach to international cooperation and international institutions. For smaller and middle countries like New Zealand, international institutions are crucial. So when Mr. Trump started undermining the WTO quite deliberately, or his administration, I should say, that was, from a New Zealand point of view, a direct assault on our national interests. After all, we had been involved in seven trade disputes since 1995. We prevailed in all of them. with And all, all the people that we got involved in trade disputes, which were mediated by the um, WTO, they're all much bigger countries than New Zealand. So from New Zealand's point of view, rules matter and principles matter and institutions to uphold, the, uphold those rules and principles matter again. So when a president starts beginning to undermine an institution which safeguards those principles, it causes concern. It wasn't just New Zealand. I was in Japan in 2019. The Japanese, uh, I spoke to many people in the Japanese foreign ministry, in the national security establishment. And while they were sympathetic and agreed with Mr. Trump's diagnosis of the Chinese problem, the, 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 the rise of China, they didn't agree with the actions taken. In other words, they agreed with the diagnosis, but they disagreed with the prescription, which was a bit of a trade war between the United States and China, but it had huge effects around the world. It wasn't just a, a matter between the US and China. The way trade relations are conducted in the 21st century is that, of course, many other countries are involved in supply chains and in a trade relationship. So um, I, I think when I said it was mixed at the beginning of my answer to you, Elizabeth, I meant that I think on, on generally, generally, I think the majority view amongst other liberal democracies was that um, uh, Mr. Trump, had, was was not holding some of the traditional values. He was very critical of NATO, which went down very badly in Europe. He was critical of the UN. He was critical of NATO. And he attacked some of the institutions which many other democracies 
take very seriously. Um, but uh, the Putin government um, were quite happy with Mr. Trump, uh, and he established quite good relations with this authoritarian regime in in Moscow. In addition, Mr. Trump made progress in the relationship, although he didn't have too much substantive to show for it, with the North Korean di uh, dictator, Kim Jong-un. So um, th there was that. So there was that pattern. The other thing is that Mr. Trump's presidency was lauded and supported by populists in other countries. Um, Mr. Johnson, who became prime, Boris Johnson became prime minister of the UK, was a great Trump fan. Um, and uh, all, people like uh, the Brexiteer, Miss Nigel Farage, great Trump supporters. Mr. Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's now left office, another big supporter. Victor Orban in Hungary, another big supporter. So, I'm, you know, you've got to look at this in the whole. It's a big picture. But for other liberal democracies, I think the Trump administration was disconcerting. The other thing here was was not just the nature of some of the policies, but was that policy quickly changed with Mr. Trump. There was a degree at times of bewildering changes of policy. For example, in Mr. Trump's first year, he seemed to have an exceptionally close relationship with Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader. And even up to the point when COVID started to develop, Mr. Trump initially praised Xi Jinping, but then became ultra critical. So I think there was a sense that uh, from from outside, but amongst particularly amongst the other liberal democracies, um, that Mr. Trump was mercurial and he, he, he didn't seem to have fixed positions. And some fixed positions he did have, the other liberal democracies were not very keen on. So why, um, one of the things that I've struggled to get my head around when I look at what's going on in America is why Mr. Trump remains as, as popular as he does. Um, why in when people can see his track record as a president in a foreign policy perspective, does his um, uh, popularity stay so high? What was he talking to that is part of the American psyche or part of some of American psyche around anti-UN, anti-NATO, anti-institutions, anti-established relationships going back 40, 50, 60 years post the Cold War? I mean, what he's articulating in that context, you could I could never imagine when I was a young person studying at Waikato doing my foreign policy, um, that a Republican president would ever yeah. say. So who's he talking to and why does that message anti those global establishments uh, resonate so greatly? It's a great question and it's not an easy one to answer, but let, let me, that won't put me off, um, but let me try. It probably won't be a complete answer. That's what I'm trying to say, um, because it's such a tough question. And I think it puzzles many of us. And I think we have to be a bit humble about these things, because I think the many Republican contenders were surprised by how quickly Mr. Trump saw them off uh, in the race for the top job. Uh, I, I think one thing that's played a big role, which has nothing to do with Mr. Trump, is the rise of the social media in the last 15 years. And Mr. Trump was very adept at using that. Um, he was the first person to use Twitter, who, uh, well, not the first, but 
he was one of the first people running for the most powerful office in the world uh, to begin to see the potentialities of um, uh, Twitter and the social media. We often forget it, but the social media has only been with us about 15, 20 years. Um, it enables people to articulate their views on a range of things. Um, and sometimes people, it becomes, how should I put it, a bit of an echo chamber. I, I, what I've noticed with the rise of the social media is that people tend to select the news from areas where they feel comfortable receiving it. In other words, it become can become self-sustaining that you only listen to the news that you think is politically reliable. Um, that's one thing. Um, Mr. Trump quickly established a very formidable presence in the social media and won a lot of support in that area. He also played the anti-establishment card quite cleverly, which on the face of it is incredible. Here he is, a billionaire, a person who had never actually done anything but work for the family business. He'd never gone for an interview with another company. Um, and yet he presented himself um, you know, as an anti-establishment. He was going to drain the swamp, wasn't he? He, he was successful in presenting himself as the anti-politician's politician. Um, and yeah, he, he, he built up this following. I, I think a deeper reason, though, than the two I've just mentioned, is that I think America was terribly hurt by the global financial crisis of 2002, 2008, 2009. I think we in New Zealand and in Australia didn't experience the depth of the impact in the way I, I was reading that one in four Americans um, had to move homes, had to, had to uh, the, the mortgage, as a result of the financial crisis, one in four Americans saw that the value of their mortgage exceed the value of their home. So, you know, lots of people had to leave home and have their lives rearranged. And there was a perception, I think, in the United States there was hope that when the Obama administration came in, those responsible who had contributed to this crisis would be dealt with. But there was a perception that Wall Street had played quite a significant role in this crisis, and yet they were being bailed out. And I think that caused a lot of anger and frustration amongst many Americans, uh, middle-class Americans, as well as others. And I think Mr. Trump tapped into that sense of frustration and anger. Many Americans felt after the global financial crisis, that they could not look forward to improved standard of living. There was also the perception of growing, and it's, re it's not just a perception, the reality that of growing inequality, that America's wealth was being concentrated in ever fewer hands. You know, the, the America has always been based on the idea that if you work hard and you dedicate yourself, anyone can make it. And I think there was, if you like, I think Mr. Trump benefited from some disillusionment in the belief of the American dream that followed after the global financial crisis. Um, what really shocked me though, um, and here I share exactly what you, you, you just said, Todd, was the fact that Mr. Trump could um, indicate when there was no legal evidence that the election had been stolen in 2020. And so many people not only reacted in a pretty violent way in trying to storm the Capitol Hill, but 
so many people within the Republican Party maintain that what he said was accurate. When there's no evidence, there's, there's been, I think, 64 legal cases so far, and none of them have really delivered the sort of evidence that the election was stolen. So turning to current events, we've got three major geopolitical issues today, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, uh, what's happening in Gaza and, and ongoing tensions around Taiwan. So yeah. what, what's the difference between the Democrats, Republicans' positions on those and more specifically Trump and Biden, given that they are at the moment the presumptive nom nominees? You know, clearly, if, if Nikki Haley gets the nomination of the Republicans, I think the differences between the Democrats and the Republicans could well disappear. If Mr. Trump gets it, and he does look like he's the favourite, but he has significant legal hurdles to overcome in the first half of 2024, uh, just for argument's sake, if Mr. Trump does get the nomination, and he is the contender for the presidency, um, yes, we will see significant differences between the Democrats and the Republicans over whether America continues its support for Ukraine. America has committed more than 75 billion in military and humanitarian support. I think that support has been crucial. Uh, Germany is the second biggest provider of uh, military and humanitarian aid after the United States. If the United States was to discontinue its support, uh, that would obviously be very good news for the Putin regime, which has illegally invaded um, Ukraine. And I, I think the big fear for countries, the smaller countries in the Baltics, is if the United States does have a change of leadership, that Europe may not be able to fill the gap. Uh, they may not be able to provide all the what that would be lost with the Republican president and that Mr. Putin would effectively win, that he would be able to consolidate a territorial gain, which would be bad news for all middle and small countries around the world. I mean, New Zealand has a huge stake in Mr. Putin being defeated in the Ukraine. And I think many small and middle-sized countries are very fearful that the principle that might is right is re-established. So, this is a big difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. But to be fair, the Republican, there are Republican contenders for the presidential nomination that don't take the view that America should cut off its support for Ukraine. But it is, you know, it, it is a possibility. Uh, the other issues you meant, I don't think there would be a huge difference between the Republicans and the Democrats over support for Israel. If anything, the Republicans are even more pro-Israeli than um, the Democrats are. Um, but it's interesting to see how public opinion has shifted in the United States on this issue in the last seven weeks. And ultimately, politicians have to take note of what the public's thinking, and particularly younger people. And uh, it seems to me that there, there is quite a shift going on there. Uh, the Taiwan issue... I, again, I'm not sure there'd be too much distance between Biden or Trump on Taiwan. Um, Mr. Biden surprised many people by quite categorically saying that if China launched a military assault against Taiwan, the US would get militarily involved. So that he, he, he didn't he removed any ambiguity there. 
my own view on this is um, that American support for Ukraine is crucial because I believe the outcome in Ukraine will frame how forward-leaning China is on Taiwan. So there is a connection between Ukraine and the Taiwan situation. So and, just, um, just to yeah. be clear, what you're saying is that if uh, Russia gets away with it, that could embolden China to do something in Taiwan. Yes, and China has been tacitly supporting uh, Russia's invasion. It says it has a peace plan and it came up with a peace plan, but the plan did not address Russia's territorial gain. It just called for an immediate ceasefire. If you were Ukraine, you'd feel pretty disgruntled by any plan that froze the existing territorial gains that Russia's made illegally. I mean, Russia has just torn up the UN Charter with its invasion of um, Ukraine. And uh, it, it's it's interesting that we're even having this discussion because I think even a decade ago, Republicans and Democrats would have been absolutely committed to reversing that the, the consequences of that illegal invasion. But times have changed. Mr. Trump would argue, to be fair, he would say um, he wouldn't abandon Ukraine, but he would pick up the phone and get peace between the two leaders. He says he knows Zelensky well, he knows Putin well. Um, so he would put a lot of emphasis on his ability to wheel and deal and negotiate. But from a Ukrainian point of view, I think they would feel it's, the, it's their land that's being negotiated over. So, um, yeah, th there is some foreign policy differences between the republic. I think the big ones, though, are not so much on those issues, but on the attitudes towards international institutions. Uh, because uh, I think uh, Nikki Haley was the uh, US ambassador and during the Trump administration to the UN, um, I think for two years, and then I think she had enough she did a fair job i think and um you know many americans were pretty comfortable with her performance but again i do think the republicans are much less much more detached about international institutions and i i yeah again i i, I think that would be a big difference yeah going forward well um we could keep talking but we are conscious of uh, uh your time uh Professor, look, we would love to have you back as we move into uh, 2024 proper, uh, and probably we get to the formalisation of who the two candidates are. Yeah. Uh, if, if you could spare uh, another hour for us, we would love it. Uh, just no, I'd be delighted. It. It's a great pleasure to be with you both. Yeah, well, thank you very much. That's been... Yeah, thank you. It's, your insights have been wonderful. Thanks so much. So, wasn't that fantastic, Professor Patman? Um, clearly an expert, as we knew he was, and his insights were invaluable in terms of thinking about how US foreign policy has changed over the, since especially um, World War II, and really solidifying in our minds what we already knew is that this election is going to be really intense, and it's going to have a major impact, the outcomes of it will have a major impact on the global scene, not just US domestic politics. Got a real sense of that, eh? That um, you know, every US election is important because of the nature of the importance of the United States of America and the global community. But 
it just feels that next year the stakes are so much higher, you know, with yeah. uh, Russia, with the Middle East, with China. Uh, and I think I thought he just outlined um, the reasons for some of those tensions and differences within the uh, Republican and Democratic parties. So very, very well. And I think he's going to be so good that we can get him back next year as the election uh, uh, heats up. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. And also as international events play out in Gaza and in the Ukraine and China. Um, and hope <laughs> let's hope there aren't any major geopolitical issues that come up between now and the election, but there could well be. And it's, um, it, it's probably poor of me to say this, but I'll say it anyway. I find that every time there is an international um, uh, crisis, and obviously the absolute tragedy in uh, Gaza is the latest, I just find it hard to imagine four and a half, five more years of President Biden. Uh, he just he he just strikes me as being fundamentally too old to be able to uh, portray the necessary uh, mix of um, muscular muscular intent as necessary, or um, calm, uh, considered, dispassionate judgment and empathy that you sort of hope that you would see from a leader of um, the free world. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Trump on the other side, and well, you know, enough said. So it's yeah. it's hard not to feel a little um, uh, concerned over what sits in front of the world, uh, and therefore New Zealand over the next um, few years. But anyway, we shall see see how it all pans out. It's been a fascinating interview. As per usual, we have our um, past glory slot where we talk about a former US president um, and some interesting background on them, how they became elected and hopefully some fun facts. So who did you choose? So I, yeah, I made the selection myself this time and I decided to go right back to, to one of the founding fathers that probably generally, unless you're a, a um, student of American political history, don't know a lot about. So I went for president number two, John Adams, whose name might be familiar to those, that little guy. So anyone that's familiar with Hamilton the Musical is who we're, what we're quoting now. Um, so the Adams administration was a, was a big part in Act 2 of um, Hamilton the Musical. And some of those, I will traverse some of those issues and um, events. And dare I say it, Act 2 of the presidency. Yeah. So tell us about this man. So John Adams was born in 1735 in Braintree, Massachusetts. So he was a New England man, a northerner. Um, he studied at Harvard, where he became and then became a lawyer. Um, he became a committed Republican with a small R, so um, supported um, American independence from Great Britain, following his cousin, who might even perhaps be more famous than John Adams, particularly to... Um, consumers of craft beer because Samuel Adams has had a, a beer brand named after him and I've enjoyed it several times myself I'm, I'm not going to I lie. I never knew that there we go that's a that's a fascinating fact. Yeah. Boston Boston Lager 
it's a Boston Lager or Boston Ale? Anyway, um, so uh, John Adams started writing um, a series of political essays in many Boston newspapers um, supporting the cause of republicanism um, under the pen name, which is fantastic, Humphrey Plough Jogger. Where oh. these guys came up with their pen names, I'm not sure. Yeah, you think he could have done better than that. But anyway, Humphrey yep. Plough Jogger. <laughs> Plow jogger. So he, he was an important figure in the Continental Congress, which was the rebel government set up by the American colonies um, against Britain. He was a strong supporter of George Washington, and he himself became a leader in the, in the Revolutionary War. He was appointed um, chief judge of the Massachusetts Superior Court. And he, along with Thomas Jefferson and others, helped draft the Declaration of Independence that was signed in 1776, um, which sparked the Revolutionary War. Um, he, uh, he was in the first presidential election of 1789. Um, that was the first um, election after the end of the Revolutionary War. And at that stage, the Electoral College, the electors each got to cast two votes. Um, and the person with the most votes became president, and the person with the second most votes was vice president. So um, George Washington was unanimously elected with 69 votes, and Adams became his vice president when he received um, 34. He was elected to the, to the office of president in 1796 in what was the first real contested election because um, Washington, the, no one was really ever going to be up against him. And the, the, the previous elections where Washington became president, um, it was really just a, a, an election to see who would be vice president because everyone knew that Washington was unanimously going to get elected. He was such a powerful figure and leader in, um, in American politics at the time. George Washington could have romped home to victory again had he chosen to run, but he chose not to. He retired under his own vine to his um, tobacco, um, farm at Mount Vernon. Um, and so this, this, as I say, this was the first real contested election. So by this time, there had been two factions um, developing in George Washington's cabinet. So the Federalists, who were supportive of strong centralised government and represented a lot of the northern states, and then uh, the Democratic Republicans, what would become the Republican Party, um, who were largely southern states, and they favoured devolution and states' rights over a strong federal government. So the Federalist faction was led by John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, um, and the Republicans were led firstly by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and then surprisingly, after a shift in political allegiance, Aaron Burr. So all of these men were campaigning. Um, well, no, all of them were running. Aaron Burr was the first um, person to openly campaign, to tout for votes. And this led to John Adams calling political campaigning a wicked game that he didn't want to be a part of. However, um, yeah. Um, but at this stage, interest the... Even at, at this early point in American politics, there were starting to be some serious tensions developing even within the parties. So the Federalists as a party were starting to unravel during the election. Um, Adams was what was called a high Federalist. So he was really um, 
in some ways he was portrayed as being pro um an established a, a democracy that was almost semi um royalist in a way um so elitist um is what the perception was and um he was continually being undermined by alexander hamilton who sort of schemed against him and was um secretly supporting another federalist pinckney for the federalist ticket and this led to adams calling hamilton in public a creole creole bastard Gore. yeah so in 1790 politics just for me sorry to interrupt but just shows you american politics has been very robust since the start i think sometimes we better oh okay it gets better better. so yeah so in the 1796 election um uh, Adams won, but by only three electoral college votes, with Jefferson becoming his vice president. So this was the uh, this is the only time in American history that there have been a president and vice president representing different parties, which of course led to inevitable tensions, especially because Adams retained Washington's cabinet. So you had these two factions within within the executive branch within the same cabinet fighting with each other, and this played out in the House of Representatives as well. So it got to the point where congressmen were spitting tobacco at each other on the floor of the House, and it even led to a brawl um, in in the House of Representatives. So two congressmen, Griswold and Lyon, in 1798, had to be removed um, when they um, attacked each other, one with a wooden cane and the other one with a set of fire tongs. So we think about American um, factionalism and partisanship now being bad, but I'd, we haven't seen that happening on the floor of the House of Representatives. Who would win, who would win if you had a cane uh, versus fire tongs? I'm, I, I'm thinking the fire tongs, I think, because they're going to be long and they're going to be metal, and I think they'll beat a cane. But yeah, I, as I understand it, the, the, the tongs were employed as a self-defense mechanism because the the chamber was heated by, by fires. So I, ca- I can't remember. What, I think it was Griswold that attacked Lyon with a ca- with his cane, um, and and Lyon grabbed the tongs that were nearby in the fireplace and used them for self-defense. Mm. Well, that is interesting <laughs> context because it does make the Republican Party debates just seem a heck of a lot more tame when you hear that. I know, right. But- um, the presidency of, of Adams was also marked by some trick and, tricky foreign policy issues, which is pertinent given the discussion that we had earlier with, with Professor Patman. So at the time, there was the war between France, led by Napoleon and England, um, and Adams sided with Britain, which angered the um, pro-French Republicans, and it resulted in a quasi-war between the US and France, um, which was basically a trade dispute, and it played out on the high seas. Um, ultimately, Adams was a one-term president, not least because of Aaron Burr, who switched um, allegiances to secure the New York um, Senate seat. And because of the way different different states at that time voted for the, their electors in the Electoral College, New York, the New York um, House determined who were the electors. So if you if you won the majority in the House, then essentially that guaranteed you those votes for presidency. Um, 
So in 1800, at the 1800 election, he came, John Adams came in fourth. He lost um, to his own um, party rival who had been publicly supported by Hamilton, which was Pinckney, but he also lost to Thomas Jefferson, who became president, and Aaron Burr, who became the vice president. Um, Post-politics, although previously fierce political rivals, Adams and Jefferson became friends in their retirement, and they wrote hundreds of letters to each other, and these have been described as one of the greatest legacies of American literature. And interestingly, they ended up dying within hours of each other on the 4th of July in 1826, which was the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which Adams and Jefferson wrote together before they became political rivals. So that's some kind of irony. That's serendipity or something there, isn't it? Mm. So, so he was 90 when he died. He yeah. was a, and and he was America's longest living president right up until Ronald Reagan overtook him. Yes. So that's and a now, good innings. And now Jimmy Carter. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's a that's a great story. So his son his son John Quincy Adams um, switched from the Federalists to the Republicans and was elected as a Republican president in 1825. Um, and that was a tight election decided by, decided by the House. Yeah, so that's the first father and son combo. Yep. And interestingly, when um, John Quincy Adams was elected, his father, John Adams Sr., remarked, no man who ever held the office of president would, would congratulate a friend on obtaining it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, yes. Um Maybe they say that about prime minister roles too. Who knows? But um, <laughs> that's that's great. Thanks, thanks, Elizabeth. That uh, paints a story uh, very well of uh, of the early part uh, of America and how you know how fierce the debate was uh, right fr- at the very start of American's history, political history. It's just yep. been a fierce debate, hasn't it? And uh, it's it has. Um, George Washington was vehemently opposed to political parties. He believed that it would be the undoing of, of the great US dem- democratic experiment um, and that it, it would lead good men to do bad things. So, uh, but, it, but it started within his own cabinet straight mm. away. Yeah. Well, the price of democracy, I guess. Uh, look, that's mm. fantastic. Um, and that brings a great episode, I think, to its conclusion. And so is it right for me to say that our next one is going to be live from the United States of America? It may not be live, but I will be in America. So I think I'll be, we will record when I'm in Las Vegas in city <laughs> for another conference. Um, so we may hit the streets of Vegas hopefully, and maybe find some people that we can talk to, um, American voters, to see what, what they're feeling, what the mood of the nation is at the moment. Oh, and to get that live feedback from the, from the streets, if you like, of Sin City, that will be, that will be something. Uh, very good. Well, from a beautiful Tauranga, um, hi there, uh, hope you've enjoyed listening, and we'll see you again soon. The Story Old Glory is written, edited and produced by Elizabeth Soule and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our theme tune is Shootout at Sundown by Dalboni. 
Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. Please follow us on all social media. And if you're enjoying listening to our show, please leave a five-star review and tell your friends about us. It really helps us to get our message out. Thank you.